Hey, it's Kristen. Thank you for tuning in to Rational in Portland. Leslie Beanen, thank you so much for coming on Rational in Portland. I'm I'm a huge fan of yours, so I'm so thrilled that you're here. Thank you. And I became very familiar with you during your publications regarding COVID, which you're still, my understanding is you're still coming out with with publications because we're learning more and more about what lockdowns and our responses to the pandemic have done to society, education, healthcare, et cetera. Correct. And are there any papers or is there anything that you're working on currently? So right now we've been focused on trying to get our Norfolk report kind of into the media. Talk about that. Yeah. So back in April of last year, I was asked to join um, this group of scientists that was working on a report that could be used to inform a COVID commission. That was the goal. And uh, I think Martin Koldorf and Jay Bhattacharya were kind of the brain child behind that. And it was myself, um, Marjorie Smilkinson, Tracy Hogue, Steve Templeton, Jay Martin, and Marty McCary. Um, and then uh, Ram Durasetti kind of joined like a, right after we got started. So we met and then we worked, you know, after that meeting for just months and months and months and months. It was really a lot of work <clears throat> in part because we agreed to work by consensus. So we like all had to agree on the content, which is actually a really hard way to work. <laughs> and we talked in the beginning about dividing it up. Like, should we just have, you know, the people who know about school closures, write those chapters? And we decided we didn't want to do that because we wanted it to reflect a variety of political views and a variety of backgrounds. And so we we all had to agree on every chapter. So it, it really took a long time. Anyway, we just released it. We kind of ended up, um, after months and months, kind of really rushing to get it out because the House Energy and Commerce Committee hearings were going to start. And because the way that it was formatted was there's like a summary and then a set of questions for 10 chapters, 10 topics. And the topics were like mask mandates, um, school closures, natural immunity, vaccination, whatever, you know, sort of big themes. And then each topic had a set of questions and we wanted those questions to be available to the committee. And also the Danish government had asked us for it because they're doing sort of something similar. Um, so we wanted it to get out. So it's up on the web. Um, and then we've also been writing about the content. And ooh, sorry, in my case, um, really pushing for a, a bipartisan commission, which so far you know, keeps failing. Um, several senators have tried to get it passed and not succeeded. On both sides, there have been a few Democrats and a bunch of Republicans who've tried to get that. Um, bill to the floor and 
Chuck Schumer has squashed it. Um, so that hasn't happened. So that's what I've been writing about lately. Are you comfortable saying how you would lean politically or how you do lean? I mean, I voted as a Democrat my whole life. I'm a registered Democrat. Um, that was always my political affiliation up until, you know, COVID. And I, I don't, my values haven't changed. So I'm just on the fence now about, you know, I'm, I will not vote strictly on party lines anymore, um, but more on who's running. And to be clear, it, the Republicans haven't put up anybody that I'm happy with. Um, so I'm certainly not like running into the arms of the Republican Party. When you say they haven't put up anybody that you're happy with, are you speaking specifically in regard to like presidential candidates or legislative or what what level are we talking about? Um, yeah, like presidential for sure. Um, and then, you know, around the country, I guess it just depends on the region. I mean, there's certainly Republicans I respect and would vote for if I lived there. Sure. Um, yeah, I, I guess I was, since we're in Oregon, I was just speaking in terms of Oregon generally. Yeah, I mean, there's mod a few moderate Republicans in Oregon. They I, have to be. <laughs> <laughs> At least if, if they're in the yeah, Portland area, they have to be. They seem to tend to not make it into the higher levels much. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one thing I've been a little bit active in and I'm interested in being more active in is uh, open primaries, which is something I think Oregon will really, really benefit from. And I'm hopeful that there will be an open primary uh, measure on the ballot in 2024. I'm, I think they got enough um, signatures and, you know, it got booted off in, I think, a really, like, dirty move um, for the last election. I didn't even know about this. Oh, this is great news. Yeah, so it, it was questioned on some I mean, grounds. not great news it was booted <coughs> off, but this is yeah. great news that something's been formulated. Yeah, so it, I think it'll be coming back. Um, so it was, like, questioned by, I'm assuming Shemaya Fagan. I'm <clears throat> but I'm not 100% sure who was behind kind of saying that it, it wasn't worded properly. That was their beef with it. And the open primary people challenged it, I believe, and they didn't succeed in keeping it on the ballot. So it was like all ready to go. Then it was tossed off because of some wording issue, and I'm pretty sure it'll be for 2024. That would be great. I agree with you. I think it's a real issue that we don't have open primaries in this state and what that means generally for people who have open primaries or don't know what that means is if you're a registered Democrat like Leslie and I are, you get in the primary election, you get a slate of candidates from the Democratic Party that you get to vote on. Like, for instance, for governor, I voted for Tobias Reed. It was Tobias Reed versus Tina Kotek. But I don't get to vote in the primary for any candidates from any other party. Like, I didn't even get to vote for Betsy Johnson, who was running as an independent, because she's not part of a political party. So she doesn't get to participate in the primaries. And the idea of an open, and I think, I think frankly, a lot of people don't vote for that reason, is they just assume, well, my vote's not going to matter because Oregon is a blue state. It's going to go to a Democrat anyway. I think a lot of Republicans don't vote. I think a lot of moderates just don't vote. But there are really important ballot measures. We've got this ballot measure state where if you get enough signatures, you can get anything you want on the ballot, mm -hmm. which is how we got, you know, 110 
all sorts of other charter reform, all sorts of other stuff that's come down the pipeline is using Portland and, and or Portland certainly because that's where a lot of our drug crisis is. But Oregon generally is a guinea pig for various causes. And you can really pass any law you want if you get enough signatures here. And so these primaries are pretty important. A lot of people aren't voting in them because they're just, if you're, you're limited to your party, and if you're a non-registered voter, which a lot of people are because we have a motor voter law, you come here from another state, you get registered as a unaffiliated voter, um, not non-registered as a unaffiliated voter. So you get registered as an affiliated, non-affiliated, and then you don't really get a in important things like gubernatorial candidates, although you do get a vote on ballot measures. I think a lot of people, because they don't get a say in gubernatorial candidates, just don't vote. Yeah, we have such a low turnout. I mean, everybody has a low turnout in primaries anyway, but open primaries should hopefully raise participation, which would be huge. I mean, Washington and California have open primaries. It's honestly really surprising we don't. Um, and Andrew Yang of the Forward Party has been a huge proponent of this as a way to diminish extreme candidates, right? Like if everyone can participate in a primary, it should drive people toward the middle because you could, in theory, appeal to voters from the other party. And it really seems like that's all we have. I mean, you look around Congress and it's just filled with the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the squad. And I mean, they're certainly the loudest. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if we if we could tamper some of that extremist stuff. And this thing, Leslie, this Schumer being against the this Norfolk paper also seems extremist to me. You're telling me that this Norfolk paper is a bipartisan report. Yeah, knowing what he's been against is, is the formation of a bipartisan commission. So he doesn't want, you're, you're recommending, you all are recommending in this paper that a commission be formed, what, at the legislative level federally? Yes. To do a, is this, would they be doing a postmortem on COVID? Correct. Correct. And tell us more about where, where do we find this paper? You said it's up on the web. Is there a website? Yeah, it's called norfolkgroup.org. And we'll link to that in the show notes. And then what do you think it was about you in particular that caused the people who were coming up with this commission, forming this commission to say, hey, Leslie needs to be at the table? So I think I was the only one with a faculty position at a school of public health, um, even though several of those other people do have public health, like an MPH. I believe Jay does and Tracy does. Uh, Tracy might have a PhD. I'm not exactly sure. So definitely other people had expertise in public health, but weren't um, on the faculty in public health. And then I've just written so much. <laughs> I think that was definitely um, an important part of it. And then in that group, I'm probably the farthest left. <laughs> so I think, you know, we they wanted some representation um, from the farthest left person was from Portland. You're kidding me. <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, maybe maybe others would disagree with that statement. Uh, and I don't 100% really know all their politics, honestly. But um, but it's an explicitly bipartisan. Question. Excuse me. Is, is, isn't it an explicitly nonpartisan paper? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And so that's part of why it sounds like they wanted you at the table too. But of course, they couldn't just have any old, they couldn't just have some leftist hack. I mean, like you said, you were at the, you had a school of public health faculty position. And do you still have that position? I don't. I left in January. Why did you leave in January? Well, in January specifically, just because of the quarter we're starting. So I would have, you know, I didn't want to start teaching and then leave in the middle of a quarter. That seemed really lousy um, for my students. It's something I've been thinking about a long time. And, you know, COVID definitely precipitated um, for me because I felt that the school wasn't a leader. Is this OHSU? It's the joint school. So it's OHSU in Portland State. Um, and I felt like I was definitely one of few voices um, saying, you know, we need to go back in person. Um, you mean like back to work, back to school, et cetera? Yeah. Lockdowns need to end. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wasn't really specifically talking about lockdowns in, in the context of um, our meetings, but like, I was generally saying, like, we need to be offering in-person classes. I was very clearly, like, not for requiring masks on, in class, things like that. So it was definitely an outlier, I think. Um, Were you the only person who wanted to return to in-person classes, in-person faculty meetings? I wasn't the only person. But well, that's I good. I think I was in the minority I'm sure, I'm sure that you were. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, the, I mean, you work downtown, so you know how this vicious cycle works. But one of the things that happened is that everything was remote for the students. And as a result, there were a lot of PSU students specifically. You know, the OHSU has no undergraduate program, obviously, but PSU does. Um and then the OHSU students are, you know, either in a master's or PhD program or they're at the med school. So they're kind of living all over. They're not necessarily living downtown. But the PSU students who were living downtown, most of them moved away. Because why would you pay to live downtown when you're remote, right? So they either, like, yeah. move back home. And most of them are from Oregon, not all. Um, PSU actually has quite a few students from California, um, a few from like Hawaii, Guam, Pacific Islands. So they all moved away. And then when, so they weren't really pushing necessarily to go back in person because they weren't here. The students weren't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because they, they had been able to move away and by then they were ensconced in some other new yeah, life. Exactly. And also cause downtown was like dirty and gross and dangerous. And so there wasn't this big push coming from the students either. And also because I think, you know, the media scared everyone so badly, especially in Portland, that it wasn't safe that I don't think the students really were pushing for it, even though, in private, they would often tell me or other people, like, yeah, I'm really depressed. I'm really miserable. I'm not learning. I'm working all the time, whatever. But there were all these other kind of pull factors working against, you know, they didn't want to commute an hour back into town now. So I think, you know, and that's still happening. I mean, there are more classes in person now, but I don't think they're nearly what they were. What do you think the percentage is? 
compared to pre-COVID? Yeah, I mean, just ballpark. This is a complete guess. Yeah. I'd say maybe like 50-60%, but I I don't have a good But when you le- I guess you could say when you left. Um if you had to ballpark what I mean, what your teaching load, what you anticipated it was going to be like, was it going to be half online? No, because I didn't want to be online, so I could have had any in-person, all in-person, if that's what I wanted. So you had that option. You could say, all of my classes are going to be in-person. Probably. It could be that they would have made me teach one online. So what they kind of went to, like, they asked the faculty to come back, and the president, who they're they're looking for a new president at PSU right now, I don't think they've named anybody, but so he, he has announced he's retiring. And I thought he was, like, pretty good about saying, you know, we need to be offering in-person classes. Um, And also they saw the writing on the wall that if you're going to say that everything is remote, then the students can just go anywhere, right? Like, why would they choose PSU? And they're going to want, that's exactly (laughs) right, and they're going to want to pay less. Yeah, and it's this not even cheaper. This is now a correspondence school. Exactly. So he was saying we need to be offering in person. And when the School of Public Health asked the faculty to come back, basically everyone said, like, I want to be online. Why do you think that is? Do you think they believed? Did the faculty of public health believe it was dangerous to go back and teach in person? I don't know what they believe. They didn't say... Either way, they just didn't said. I mean, some of them say they, they have health to. issues. Um, Hard to know. You know, I wasn't in those conversations, so yeah. you really can't ascribe some view to them. Um, I think some do genuinely feel that it's dangerous for them. I think that also, like anybody, I mean, just like all the office workers don't want to come back, right? Like, they like not commuting. Um, they like being home. It just saves a lot of time. And, and some of them are probably better at teaching online than I was. Like, I really don't like it. To me, teaching is all about the connection, and I just, I really hated being online. It could entirely be that I'm also not good at it. Like, <laughs> maybe some people do offer the same quality. I don't feel like I did. I felt like even though I tried, it's just very hard with everyone's cameras turned off, and you don't really get to know people. Like, if I had passed those people on the street, I wouldn't even recognize them. Whereas before, you know, I knew all my students, people would come to my office. I was always asked to write a lot of recommendations because I got to know people. I always like made my networks open to my students. Like, you know, how can I help you get a job? How can I help you get an internship? I was very much about like connecting them to my bigger group of, you know, connections. And that all just went away. So I kind of felt like, like, what am I doing? I mean, they can just read the content, you know. And I think the part of college that's so important for kids who are low income to get into the next income group is really about like meeting people, you know, who can help you connect. And Portland State, I think we need to acknowledge they have a fair amount of those kids. Oh, well, a ton. I think in they might have more of those kids than U of O, than Oregon State. Way more. Way more. I mean, that's a big deal. Yeah. It, I want to say that 67% of PSU's student body is first to college. It's really high. That's amazing. Yeah. And so these are the these are the people that you're, this is the majority of the people you're serving. Correct. Correct. And so for me, that was a huge part of being a professor. 
you know, because I do come from like an academic background. I have a huge network of people. I just happen to know a lot of people. I'm very social. My, you know, family is very social. I have friends all over the country. I have friends in academia. And so like sitting down with my students and saying like, where do you see yourself? You know, how can I help you make that happen? Um, was a huge part of teaching for me. <coughs> so when that all went away, I started really questioning, like, is this the best use of my life? You know, which I hadn't really done. I mean, I do love teaching. It's very, very rewarding. Um, every time I got up there, I felt like I had a connection with students that was meaningful. And people, my students were very, um, what's the word? Like, there's always a small proportion of students who will come to your office and say, like, wow, like, you're the first person I, you're someone in my life who made me feel like I could do it, you know, who believed in me. So that part was very, very meaningful to me, but it really went away with COVID. So, and I felt like there just wasn't a big push from the school to bring people back. Um, people seemed very resistant to going back. So you think even if you had, been teaching mostly in-person classes, your class size would have dwindled significantly? I don't know, because they were offering fewer, so it might have been bigger. You know, so what they ended up saying was, like, everyone has to teach one in-person class per year. So say I taught global health, for example. What the school would have said to me is, you need to teach one in-person, and then you could teach one online. Um, so it's entirely possible that if people wanted in person that my classes would have been actually bigger. But I just, I don't know how many of the students have even come back to Portland, honestly. I mean, I know their enrollment's down. But that's true across the country. So did you leave this faculty position because you were concerned that the students would not come back? No, it was more that... During the time that, you know, I was away from the students and away from my community, because we didn't have any in-person meetings, you know, it was just like everything was remote. I didn't go to the office at all. We have this brand new beautiful building that just completely feels empty. I think just the severing of that connection, it felt like an uphill battle to get back there, you know, like I would have had to like rebuild everything. So it yeah. just kind of felt like a good time to try something else. And plus, I guess, if in a lot of these meetings you're discussing policies and you're in the this extreme minority mm -hmm. in regard to a lot of these policies, it probably, if I've been in those situations, I mean, that was me, that was my situation with a committee at my former church. And I just felt like, I guess these aren't my people anymore. Yeah, I mean, and there's many colleagues in my department that I really, really enjoy and love and who are very devoted teachers. Like, there are a lot of elements I think I would still connect with. But having had that be cut off, it felt like I would have had to put in a lot of um, kind of activation energy to get over that hump. You know, a feeling like, wow, like, where were you guys? Or, <laughs> you know, why why don't you want to come back or whatever? Like I did start having a lot of questions, like you're saying, like, are these really my people? And I think I, I could have reconnected. I mean, I, there's certainly a ton I have in, in common and lots of affection I have for 
lots and lots of my colleagues. I mean, many of them really do care about the students. I was really having trouble with the disconnect, though, of like, well, you care about the students, but you don't want to come back, which I don't understand. Was the argument to that that they're learning just fine online? They don't want to come back either? I, I guess. think the argument was like, yeah, you can pretty much replace it if you're like online can be a good way to learn. Is Do we have any, now I know the data says that is garbage when it comes to kids up to high school and down. So high school on down, the data is online learning, no bueno. Even the New York Times has said this. What about college? Do we have data on learning in college? There is some. It's very, very confounded, though, because the people who are learning online generally have so many other life stressors that make it difficult to be either full-time students. Um, You know, I mean, I think there are data suggesting that what they get out of it is way less. But again, like people choose that option generally because they're working or they have small children at home. Yeah, they can't leave. They, they can't, can't leave. leave. Yeah, so it's, it's really apples to oranges. Because when you're talking about fully in person, you, you know, you're generally talking about younger people who are wealthier, who are committed to being a full-time student, who would have to really carefully pick those comparator groups. And I don't think that's really been done, honestly. I mean, Although, isn't Portland State a... Com- well, I mean, like you said, a lot of people move back. But wasn't it... Hasn't it been for a while a commuter school? In other words, they it's not a dorm environment as much as like OSU or U of O? Yes, it was always a commuter school in that a lot of people lived at home or, you know, didn't live in dorms, but they were still coming in person. And the vast majority of PSU students work. Right. Yes. And they all but that's always been true. That's right? always been true. Correct. Correct. So you you could compare like PSU students who are online versus yeah, that would be. A good I mean, that study would be an do. interesting study because presumably they would be be similar. But again, like the people who are choosing online, they probably are working more. I mean, you would have to really be careful. Yeah, that'd be difficult to do. So we don't really have. It sounds like we don't really have data on that. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're was that faculty position full time, Leslie? I was like point eight. And then if you're if you're not doing that. Are you devoting your time and energy to the Norfolk group? No, I mean, that's more or less over. I mean, we're, we're trying to promote the work, but... Um, and get Congress to put a commission behind it, of course, which probably requires a lot of calories. <laughs> I mean, I don't have much influence in that sphere, but, you know, there are... We've tried to get it to our representatives, to various Congress people who have been supportive of, of this idea. Um, and interestingly, Patty Murray is one of them, who's you know very liberal Democrat from Washington. Uh, she's one who sponsored a, a piece of legislation to pass a bipartisan COVID commission. Um, and then Richard Burr of North Carolina. I mean, there have been maybe like eight or so Congress people who've floated it in different um Capacities. I think there have been three attempts. Um, and, and they've all died, huh? They have all died. So What, in committee? Yes. Oh, jeez. Yeah, and I think the White House has been squashing it, honestly. I well, mean, why is that? I, 
I wish I knew because I think it would be such an act of good faith. Like, what do you have to lose? You know, when one in our pieces trying to push for this, we keep saying, like, look, there's plenty of blame to go around. If that's what you're worried about, it's not like the Republicans did a great job either. So actually, you know, I, I think they're just worried about having to face the things that they did wrong. But a truly bipartisan commission obviously would ask questions of both administrations. Um, and I'm sure you know this, but I mean, I, in our last piece, we just did a piece for The Hill. And before that, we did one for, um, oh, Unheard. There have been 170 commissions. This is not a new idea. I mean, ranging from, there was one on like the Olympics, like, but you can't get it together to do one on COVID. And then, of course, really famously, the 9-11 Commission, right, which led to, like, very big reforms in our national security, the financial crisis. Those are probably... I'm assuming we had a January 6th Commission. Seems weird that we wouldn't have. Um, you know, I don't actually think they did. Or maybe Liz Cheney's, um, I don't know, trial, for lack of a better word, was the equivalent of that um, yeah i don't think it was funded as a piece of legislation though that seems weird it, it seems like seem the biden weird. administration would want a commission on january 6th i'll have to check on that that's a good question because when we were looking for examples that like never came up yeah i mean i i'd be interested i mean i was certainly interested in the evidence that liz cheney was presenting yeah. and i you she know, was I, she was amazing i totally agree <laughs> I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, I used to like despise her and think she was the worst of the worst. And then suddenly I was like, oh, wow. Well, Liz Cheney is like totally killing it. What did you not <laughs> like about her? I mean, she's so conservative. Yeah. Well, you know, she's from, I mean, she's from such a libertarian style state. Um, like what, what policies of hers did you, did really kind of irked you? I mean, she's a hawk very big hawk i think she's not pro-choice um you know she was a big trump supporter when you say a big hawk like into start in into getting into wars yeah. starting wars yeah. intervening throughout the world yeah yeah kind of like dick cheney ish yeah yeah know, right like not far from the tree starting two one. wars that until recently we were still in <laughs> yeah <laughs> so but yeah no i'm kind of totally singing a different tune now um so the, the Financial Crisis Commission is kind of probably the one that most people are all familiar with. But then, there, I mean, there, literally there was like on the motor fuel tax. I mean, there, there have been on just the most, to me, inconsequential issues. The um, motor fuel <laughs> tax. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay, that was yes. one. There was one on like signage in, in national parks. I mean, wow. I, yeah, I looked at like a whole list of them and I was like, wow, amazing they can't get a COVID commission given the things they've tackled in the past that were not important to most Americans. Or if if they were important, they were pretty trivial, if that's a possible I mean, you, you're probably like me. You probably voted for Biden. I voted for Biden. I happily. voted for Biden. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thrilled to vote for him. Had a party. Actually, had a party celebrating uh, when he was inaugurated, and I just uh, thought that was great. No, I was not happy to vote for Biden, but I did it. Oh, you weren't? And why is no. that? Um, I mean, he was not my choice. I thought he was too old. I liked Elizabeth Warren. I mean, like, I'm, like, super progressive. I, you know, wanted somebody, I would say, more progressive than him and younger. 
But of course, I no way I'm voting for for Trump. You know, I it's funny. I don't. I can't imagine voting for her today. But I liked Elizabeth Warren a lot too. I didn't. I mean, I ultimately I voted for Biden, but I certainly didn't. I didn't. I wasn't repelled by her policies in no, the no, way that either. I am probably today. Um, yeah, I think I would feel different today, but definitely at the time I would have preferred her to Biden any day of the week. I also like the fact that she made fun of herself. Like, you know, she went on Saturday she was Live funny. and like, <laughs> said that only kindergarten teachers voted for her, which I thought was very funny. She was funny, yeah. And, and Kate <laughs> McKinnon did a great... Oh, yeah, yeah, she was Elizabeth great. Warren. And I love it when people can go on, especially national politicians like that, can go on SNL and laugh at themselves. Mm-hmm. It shows a lot of humility and just a lot of, uh, frankly, a lot of probably self-reflection and grace, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think it's charming. I just think it's yeah. charming when anybody can la- not take something personally and laugh at themselves. What do you think of, so you say you don't like a lot of the Republican candidates. What do you think of Nikki Haley? So I just listened to her. Did you hear her on Barry Weiss? On Barry Weiss. Mm-hmm. And I was very pleasantly surprised, actually. Like, I thought she represented I herself her really well. I did, too. I didn't like her lightning round. Oh, you didn't? What, no. what parts of that uh, did you not like? Oh, well, like she asked her, would you support Trump again? And she said, yes. Which was, I mean, I get it. What's she going to say? The, the way she looks like a complete hypocrite if she says no. But I don't like it. I don't know. I that. think you're right. Actually, you're right, Leslie. I think she could have said no, though. Yeah. Yeah. And here's why. Because she condemned January 6th over and over and over again publicly at the time, and on Barry Weiss's mm-hmm. show, Honestly, is what we're speaking about. And I think it's the most recent Honestly yeah. episode. I'll link to that in the show notes, too. And she she was condemning his policies in that, in the, in that yeah, regard. Yeah, that would have been grounds. I agree. So I thought that was a bit odd. But yeah, that's weird. Um, but otherwise, I thought, like, I loved her answers to questions about, you know, like Barry said, like, what do you think about Don Lemon saying you're not in your prime and things like that? And she was like, this is the them issue. I like this that has nothing to do with me. And I think that's a great answer. It's like, that's how everyone should approach attempts to smear them. Yeah. I thought it was a great answer too. I just thought she sounded very moderate. Yeah. And I don't know that I, I wouldn't have said that before. I didn't know. I assumed everybody who worked for the Trump administration yeah. was a radical fringe, right? Mega person. I had no idea. Yeah, although, I mean, like McMaster, I mean, people like that certainly were not. Right? No, that's true. There were a few. That's true. Who, I think, had the attitude, like, if not us, it's going to be someone worse. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I I forget. But she loves him. Do you remember that in the... um, I think that was in the lightning round. Barry said, who did you like working with most? Oh, she said McMaster, yeah. Or who did you admire Mm -hmm. most in the Mm -hmm. administration? She said McMaster, and I just thought... Yeah, and, yeah, and I remember thinking, oh, yeah, he was great. Forgot about him. <laughs> I, was was he bamboozled by Elizabeth Holmes? Was he one of the ones bamboozled mm, by her? I don't know. Um, I got to look into that. But I just, I don't know why he just kind of left my, was he fired by Trump? Why did he just leave my consciousness? I don't know. I think he might have left. Um, Maybe he was fired. In protest or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he Trump was fired him. sick of the... Not being heard, probably. Um, One thing she said that really startled me, actually, when Barry said the UN is, and she said a farce. And I thought, whoa, you were the ambassador to the UN. Like, 
I would love to understand why she said that. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'll have to. A, I'm assuming she's written or said something about yeah, it that I, I just don't know about. Same. So, Leslie, what's your educational background and how did you get into science? So, well, I was a liberal arts major all the way, like writing. I studied Japanese. And then. You studied Japanese. Where did you go to college? I went to Princeton and I did not do any science. I mean, I had to take like two lab sciences, but I was not sciencey. And then later I got my MFA and then I was working for a vet, a veterinarian, and I started thinking like, oh, maybe I'll go to vet school. And so I had to do a whole bunch of science, which I did. You got your MFA in what? Masters of Fine Arts. Fiction writing. Fiction writing. (laughs) How much fiction? Do you do fiction writing? Yeah. Do you really? Uh Have you published anything? Uh I would love to read. um, Where is it? Is it in the New York? I'm I'm thinking about where it might be. Not the New Yorker, but... um, I published in Story Magazine, a bunch of journalism I'm sure nobody's really? ever heard of. Yeah. That's I mean, if amazing. you're a literary writer, you might have heard of them, but... Oh, my God. You're... So, so did you think you were going to teach fiction writing mm-hmm. then? Yeah, exactly. And then how did you go from that to vet? So, my friends started having to take jobs, like, in the middle of nowhere, to... Because fiction writing, you know, so they'd, yeah. like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They'd go off to, like... You know, Poughkeepsie and places I didn't want to live. And so, which is really the reality of teaching fiction. I mean, you're so lucky if you have a job at all. Um, and then a few people, of course, they make a living writing books, but it's a tiny percentage. And also tiny. very lucky because books just don't make yeah, money no, anymore. I mean, this is a teeny, 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 tiny percentage of writers. Yeah, so it's almost like everyone is teaching. Bruce Springsteen, basically. It's like yeah. saying, I'm going to be a musician. Yeah. Um, so my friends were all having to go off and, and figure out what to do. Like one of them worked as a guard at the Metropolitan Museum. He's actually as like a guard. Yeah, he's actually a very well-known poet. Wow. <laughs> no, I mean I think now he. Can he's you say teaching. who it is? Uh, his name is Jeffrey Nutter. Wow. Yeah, I mean there's a couple of books out. I mean this Isn't was like amazing? a few years ago. Yeah. No, he, I think he actually liked it, but um, but you know you have to find find something else. Yeah, you got to eat. You got to yeah. eat. And so I was thinking, like, do I really want to, you know, teach fiction? What's this going to look like? Um, <clears throat> and I thought, well, I'll go do some other things. And uh, so I worked for an equine vet, and I really, really loved it. And I always what did had, you do for them? Oh, everything. I mean, you know, it was like twenty-hour workdays of being on farms and surgeries. And he he did a, he did everything. Actually, we did a lot of cattle. How did you get involved in that? What made you think, I'll just, I'll be like a tech for an equine vet? Um, well, I had a horse. <coughs> I had always ridden. Oh, okay. I loved horses. And so, and he came out and worked on my horse. And I was like, oh, that looks fun. And then, so, worked for him. And we did, this was in Iowa. So, you know. Did you do your MFA in Iowa, at Iowa? Yeah. So, were you part of that Iowa work? Yeah, Iowa writers. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's an incredibly prestigious program. You have an amazing pedigree. That's it's for anybody who doesn't know. That's a very that that is the program if you're going to be a writer. That's where you go. True. And the idea that people would come out of there and not be able to eat sounds crazy. <laughs> but I that mean, just shows how yeah. difficult it well, is I mean, to make a living. Something, but it's like it maybe not be what just what you want, right? Like, 
and what, but what you go to that program for, and right. you work so hard to get mm-hmm. into it, mm-hmm. and you've got this Princeton undergraduate. Your your GPA must have been incredible. I'm sure your GRE scores were incredible, and you get into this incredible Iowa MFA program, and you're working with the best of the best, and. And then you're like, I'll work for an equine vet because practically speaking, I'm kind of looking around here and realizing I I don't, you know, want to live in a little college town isolated somewhere. Exactly. That was exactly my thought process. And I, um, yeah. So anyway, I started working with him and we did, you know, spending the day on like pig farms and cattle ranches and doing it was all large he, he really didn't do dogs and cats different from <laughs> yeah. the iowa writers yeah MFA it was which program. is probably why i liked it too because <laughs> it was just like and so then you decide to go to vet school and where'd you go to vet school i went to tops and well it's outside of boston and then af- after that you what did you think you wanted to special like what kind of animals did you want to specialize so in? i wanted to do horses and but when I went to vet school, I think this is like so often the case, and this is why um, I love teaching, is because I met a professor who totally changed what I wanted to do. And he was like my mentor, and he was very interested in um, like animal health in developing countries and improving lives of people in poverty through livestock. So I became very interested in that, and I just completely switched my focus to that. And I started working on, on zoonotic diseases, which means transferred from animal, you know, non-humans to humans. Amazing. And that is the link to COVID. Yeah. Or we thought, or we were told was, right? Mm-hmm. We were told it was from probably some wet market via an animal. And now we're being told it's probably from a lab. But so they knew, however it got out. You're the, nodding. Are both nodding. of those things true? That we were told one yeah, and now the other? Yes. Um, That's I mean, my understanding. Yeah, I, certainly the media was very much on the, well, some media, on the uh, natural emergence platform. Um, and I think the lab. Including has, the New York Times. Oh, yeah, yeah. All the mainstream media. And the, and the suggestion was it's racist to think otherwise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were very good models. This isn't a crazy idea, right? Like, this is oh no, yeah. SARS emerged, and yeah, and don't we think HIV emerged that way? HIV is really complicated. It's not a good model for COVID emergence, and because okay. it's not respiratory in part, and because um, I actually taught a ton on HIV in my class. But so I think a lot of people don't know this. When the WHO and and other people looked at these blood samples that had been stored that went back to the 30s, actually, from um, vaccination testing that was done in Africa, um, testing like a bunch of different vaccines, actually, that were developed in the 30s and 40s. And there was a lot of blood had been stored that had been taken from people who lived in Central Africa when HIV was identified, eventually they went back and looked at those samples to see how long HIV had been around. So our understanding is like it emerged in the 80s, which is, it, of course, when it became... In the U.S. Yeah, well, everywhere. Understanding, or everywhere, sure, everywhere. When it became a global pandemic, but actually it even was around in the 30s, 
which is just fascinating. I mean, not in a lot of people, but they did find samples. Is the idea that it was less virulent until the 80s? No, it just never was like widespread enough that it kind of, you know, fizzled. What? Like it would pop up, fizzle, pop up, fizzle. So nobody, you know, it just never became a pandemic until the 80s. I mean, so much had changed, right? Like people were traveling all over the world. There was air travel. There was vehicle travel. Whereas back then, if one person had HIV in some little town, it was possible for it to just die out. So that's probably what happened. So That's it, amazing. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Um but anyway, so like the be- the better model is SARS, right? Which is like almost exactly like COVID. It's like a slightly different. Is that what different we're calling COVID? SARS CoV two is that right. COVID? Yes, that's COVID. So SARS CoV one, yeah, is SARS correct? Severe acute respiratory syndrome, right? So SARS one was the one. Remember, like in China and Hong Kong, and then. It spread by air travel, and everybody shut down air travel, and that basically squashed it. Yeah, uh, that was during Obama. Yes. Yes. So, and I'm not sure if they ever, like, documented exactly where it started, but, like, pretty clearly had a, you know, emergence similar to what was being described for COVID. And it's weird when you say shut down air travel, because I have no memory of being affected by that. Yeah, so they banned like all incoming flights from Hong Kong and China for a while. There was a and that's why I have no yeah, a bunch of, of Canadians got SARS okay. on some international flight, and I mean SARS cost the global economy a lot of money um, because there was this period of like stopping travel, <coughs> but then it just died out. And why didn't COVID die out? COVID didn't die out because COVID has an asymptomatic period of spread. So when people had SARS, when SARS was infectious, people were actively sick and they could stay home. It was like, oh, I feel crappy. Okay, I won't go out. But uh, SARS-CoV-2 has this pretty infectious asymptomatic period where people are out spreading COVID, right? So that was like never going to work. And aren't... and. Aren't there people who can just remain asymptomatic yeah. but have COVID? Yes, correct. And they're, can they spread COVID if they're asymptomatic? Probably. Yeah. Yeah. I so mean, that's it definitely, a problem. Yeah. So containment was probably never an option. But, um, and then the first SARS, SARS-CoV-1, was also uh, more lethal. So that contained it a bit better as well because people felt crummier they stayed home more maybe some of them just died before they were contagious um so the pathogenicity was pretty different and so it yeah i mean the the biggest kind of lost opportunity i think if you know a a pandemic commission could look back that far is that at that time they didn't develop a vaccine because it would have worked probably on SARS-CoV-2. And we just thought we don't need to spend the money on a vaccine because we're going to contain this in Asia, mm-hmm. and which we did ultimately, right? And so we don't need to spend that kind of money on, I mean, incredible amount of pharmaceutical time and, and money on a vaccine because it's not going to affect us. Is it weird? Isn't it weird that Asia mm-hmm. didn't put one together? It is weird. But, you know, most vaccine development at the time it's was ha- probably it, done in the U.S. And it still is. It still yeah. is. I mean, the Chinese have their own COVID vaccine. 
as does Russia. So I think it has expanded somewhat. Um, but yeah, I mean, the U.S. is definitely still the major driver. Wow, isn't that yeah. amazing? Yeah, it is interesting that Chinese didn't do it back then. And so we just didn't see SARS-CoV-2. We just didn't, as we know it as COVID today, we, you're saying we just didn't see COVID coming at all. It was not at all on our radar that this thing was going to be upon us relatively soon after SARS-CoV-1. Right. I mean, no, there were people saying this is a big mistake. Like there will be another SARS because it's a respiratory virus. It's contagious. It's, you know, not so fatal that it just kills you. Were they dismissed as alarmists then? <sighs> were they dismissed as alarmists? I don't know. And then maybe I wonder if it was easy to dismiss <laughs> that kind <laughs> of alarm sounding from the U.S. where we just weren't seeing much of it and where, you know, images on the news aren't going to, they don't tend to drive emergent sense of need in the way yeah. that like a neighbor being yeah. sick might or a family member. I don't know why I didn't catch hold. That's a good question. I'll have to ask people I know, like Martin, who's in works on vaccine safety, like why wasn't the SARS vaccine pushed back then harder? And then uh, when did you start getting involved in writing about COVID? I started, so my first piece was on school opening. So as soon as they closed the schools in March, right, so they didn't come back after spring break, right? Right, March 2020. It was March 2020. We, we got the word like, oh, I, I want to say they closed like a week before spring break. And then it was like, well, we'll have those two weeks, right? Remember this? Yes, the, t the two-week uh, pause or whatever. Yeah. Yes, of course. So it was like the week prior to spring break plus spring break. I had this really, really bad feeling. So did, so did a <laughs> lot of us. You know, no, I remember looking around and thinking, actually, I remember saying to my neighbors who would were freaked out, but they would walk around outside together. And I remember uh, one of them came by and said that she was friends with Deborah Kofori, who at the time was chair of Multnomah County, and said, well, you know, I've talked to Deb, and, and I think, um, you know, we're going to see on schools. Maybe we do some days on, some days off. I don't really know. And, and I said, I just told her, I said, there is no way that those teachers are going back. No way. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. In this state? I mean, the teachers union has a stranglehold on the state. So they're going to, you know, look around and think about, well, what are our members' rights and what do mm -hmm. what are they going to want to do? Are they going to – we see children's germy. Yeah. Are they going to want to go back to these classrooms that are filled with germs where we're – you know, even then – they were saying, bring a, bo bring a box of Clorox wipes with your school supplies. Like, we never did this. When I was in kindergarten, you didn't have a box of Clorox wipes. Mm -hmm. My kindergartners had boxes of Clorox. They're older elementary now, but boxes of Clorox wipes from the time they were in kindergarten, preschool even. Um, and I just thought, they're obsessed with these Clorox wipes. There's no <laughs> way they're going to let kids back in with mm -hmm. a quote-unquote pandemic. I mean, by then, I don't even think it was a quote-unquote with a pandemic ongoing Do, is was that your thought as well was it about the teachers it was all of it like I didn't even think the parents would want to go back right would want their kids to go they'd be terrified yeah yeah because by then all of us were 
scared out of our minds based on like media reporting and things yeah, like that. I, I definitely saw the like hysteric writing on the wall. Um, just Did you feel scared? No. You didn't? No. Because you understood the science early on? Did you understand it by March 2020? No. I mean, nobody did. But I I just felt like we didn't have enough information yet to be scared. God, so I was so like, rational. I'm not going to just be scared proactively. Like, oh, why? I wish I had your constitution. <laughs> so you're not an anxious type. No. no. Oh, wow. Do you sleep well, don't you? No, I actually have horrible insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> but not because of anxiety. Well, I don't okay. know. My partner would probably beg to differ. <laughs> He, I think he thinks anxiety is like the explanation for all behaviors. But um, that's funny. But yeah, no, I. I do but you're, that's just not your constitution, anyway. No, is you're not no. you're not panic driven. No, and I mean I had worked on tons of zoonotic viruses, specifically even you know bat viruses. So I thought. So you were were you just more curious about all this then? Oh, I was very curious. Yeah. And but what I was really scared of the inertia. Like I felt yes. like just when you screech everything to a halt, how is it going to get going again? You know, like there's going to be tons of inertia. There's going to be tons pushback. of pushback. Pushback. I started thinking like, oh, they're not going to go back at all this year. And do you have children? Yeah, I have two. And were they in? School it, it, were they in what high school elementary? One was in eighth, and one uh, in boy eighth junior. That's not a good time to stop school. Yeah, and you know, fortunately, her school did a good job with the online stuff. Yeah, I mean, which she never like, know about, right? Um, but you know, she she and we just hated online in general. But um, so I and I also pretty quickly understood from reading and from, you know, previous school closures, that the model being used to close schools in particular was influenza A. So Say more about that. Who, who, who used influenza A to close schools? Was that in Asia? No. Um, I mean, that was being coming from here. So, like, I mean, it had happened here before that school was closed when because of flu. When did we do that? We did it in 1918. We've done it at various other times. There were short closures for, like, H. Spanish flu, was that 1918? Yeah, that was 1918. Um, there have been closures on and off for flu. They've been short. But this is not unheard of. And did that work when we had closed schools before? I'm not sure anybody really ever did the work to see if it worked, honestly. But And isn't that part of the Norfolk paper that we need a postmortem on COVID yeah. Yeah. because we have no postmortems on any of these yeah. containment, yeah. quote-unquote, containment right. measures? And so I will say that flu A is highly spread by children. Oh, totally. Right. So they, I mean, that's not a crazy <laughs> I'm convinced thing that do. they've infected yeah. me with it every single time since I gave birth to them. Yes. Yeah, so children replicate flu A well. They are a pretty big driver of flu infections. Um, and you could, if you shut things down for a week or two, I don't think it's impossible that you could really damp down a flu epidemic. In the 50s, schools were sometimes shut. for. There were some pretty big flu years in the 50s. I believe there was one in 2008, like during, yeah. I, really? Yeah. We shut schools in the U.S. in 2008? I think some. For flu, yeah, okay. Probably, not all schools, though. We'd never done that. But like where right, like not in, nationwide. Yeah. So like Ohio, some place in Ohio would have a big flu surge. They would close schools for a week, and that would be it. 
And it, it, would it usually be elementary level that they, because that's where most of those yeah. are circulating, it yeah. seems like. And it seems like immunity is better. And there's better. Yes. They don't, like, wash Fingers their hands are well. everywhere. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. So this was not unheard of. Okay. So that was kind of the model that was, I mean, very explicitly was the model. So, so that, the two-week closure, did that make sense to you at the time? Honestly, no. Knew. I was against it even then because I didn't think there was good evidence to support an influenza A model. Same why? Say more about that. Because the the infection data coming out of China didn't support it. It seemed very focused on elderly. And then, you know, the Diamond Princess, right? Like that cruise ship. Yes. Very, very clearly. There's a documentary about that. Oh, is there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll um I'll send it to, I'll send send you a link to that. So we did have some like pretty early data from China, the cruise ship and from Italy suggesting that influenza A actually was not a good model because of you know kids seeming pretty unaffected, the the fatality rate seemed to be quite a bit lower, more asymptomatic individuals. Um so I was even thinking, like, well, this is weird. Why are they using this influenza A model so when it's not behaving like influenza A? In March 2020, your understanding was, based on the data we had then, the COVID, the way it was manifesting was not, the fatality rate was, was lower than flu yes. in the past. Yes. I mean, for And like then, of course, eventually, flu. I think, what, it overtake. T- took flu. Uh, did it ever overtake flu? It's really unclear because we never really knew what the baseline was. Yeah, see, we're told that. We're told, though, that it's... I mean, maybe in old people. Right. I, on a population level, no. I would say, I mean, certainly not in children. It's way lower than flu. Yes, well, flu kills kids. We know that flu kills kids, and it kills older people, yeah, right? Well, babies and, and older yes, people. Yes, that's yeah. right. But it, it, and it can be very serious in, in kids, but it's, very, it's still rare, but not like COVID rare. I mean. Right, like a, a child dying from COVID, is a, that, that's a rare event, you're extremely, saying. Extremely, extremely, extremely rare. Despite what Sonia Sotomayor is telling us oh, during Lord. oral argument. <laughs> Where did she get that? I don't know. Well, she misremembered. I don't know. I mean, the New York Times has published some crazy, crazy statistics, and then they publish this little teasy correction that no one ever sees. So that's probably where she got it. Right. That I, I believe there was a bad statistic. In the, I, I think it, it might have been. I got to look at it. Oh, there were two that you remember mm-hmm. where they overcounted child mortality rates due Correct. to COVID, the New York Times specifically. And hospitalizations, yeah. And child hospitalizations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, off by, not like a few, but, like, orders of magnitude. God, what does that say to you about, that was my favorite newspaper. I don't know about you, but, like, as a former self-identified progressive, still identified Democrat slash liberal, I, that was my favorite newspaper. What does that say to you that they, they screwed up those science statistics so badly? It's so, it's incomprehensible. It's incomprehensible because, I mean, me too. I grew up reading the New York Times. I've been reading the New York Times literally since I was eight years old. I, my parents got the New York Times. I would sit down and read the New York Times, like, cover to cover, even from when I was eight or nine, and then I'd do the crossword puzzle with my sister. I, I loved the New York Times. I'm absolutely, like, in my bones. 
have been a New York Times diehard. Their reporter who reported on COVID the entire was time, that a Porva? A Porva Mandeville. But Porva had been writing about COVID for two years at that point and didn't seem to have like a ballpark in her head. So this is very scary to me because it shows that the mindset was more powerful than the data. I mean, we've seen that like over and over and over again because there's no way you could write that sentence and not have an internal fact checker in your head go like, that doesn't seem right. And then I'm assuming that they have like five levels of, it's like the federal government, it must be over there, five levels of fact-checking where people are initialing articles that are yeah, heading yeah. off to press. Yeah. I would. You I mean, would I'd never work there. I would. Assi- yeah. I just would assume that. it's seems like the paper of record would have numerous fact-checkers no, for they do. Yeah, that they kind do. of an article. Right, yeah. When so you're, you're informing the public about a pandemic. So the fact that that didn't set off any alarm bells is very strange. I actually just can't understand it. I mean, this is like something I say to my students all the time. Like, your inner fat checker should always be running. Always. Any calculation you make. I mean, this is something that's really drummed into you in vet school, honestly, or probably human medical school. When you come up with a number, you should be asking yourself, does this number make sense? Like, you're calculating a drug dosage. You're doing something with an anesthetic machine. Like, your question always at the top of mind should be, is this number in the right ballpark? Because if it's off a little, you're not going to kill the patient. If you're off by an order of magnitude, you are going to kill the patient. So if you come up with a number, like I believe she was using like this number, 100,000 something or other, there's no possible way you should be generating that number without a, a like, am I in the ballpark question in your mind, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that sounds right. I mean, I'm not a science person, but boy, that sounds right to me. I I can't imagine otherwise. Um, and then when you say, that's so interesting, the mindset has more power. Do, by that, do you mean like the, the, um, the belief? Well, the mindset that this is such a highly fatal virus that it's entirely possible it could have killed 100,000 children. Right, like the like the, that is running in the background. Why? Or, why? Why is that running in the background? If that's wrong, why is it running? Anxiety, because anxiety is in the driver's seat. Anxiety. They're afraid. Has its thumb on the scale of everything they do in this way that they don't notice. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. You know what I mean? So they make a decision and they don't see that their thumb is on the scale, and that what is actually on the scale is the anxiety. No, when you say that, what I think of is defunding the police to the tune of $27 million. Yeah, I mean, I think we see this in policy making all the time, the hidden thumb on the scale. Like, what is it? Is it trying to appeal to a voter base? Is it your own anxiety? Is it... All of the above. All of the above. I mean, one thing that I think was so, so wrong with our COVID response compared to other countries is that our policymakers are old. Mm. You know, we have Fauci, who's not technically a policymaker. Trump maker. was old. Trump was old. Biden's Biden is super old. old. I mean, so many of our high, our Congress is the oldest in the world. I Nancy believe. Nancy Pelosi. Right? I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. all of them are. The, they what's all the are. Average age of Congress. I want to say it's like in the seventies. <laughs> I think you're right. It's crazy old. Um, you know, getting back to that Nikki Haley <laughs> thing, which is what she kind of got in trouble for saying, is like we should have a competency test 
Yeah, and she actually said, I think we should have a competency test for, for most professions, frankly, right? yeah. and, and certainly for all Congress people, anybody who's writing laws that are going to affect yeah. all of us. Well, I, w- I like that she said we should have it for everyone. I did too. I mean, what, do you, what are you afraid of? What about your, lo- you know, what about your lawyers? What about your doctors? Jeez. Exactly. I mean, right? I don't want somebody cracking my chest open that d- can't. know what they're doing. Or, or right, that, that doesn't know who the president is. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I'd like the doctor to be oriented times three, even if I'm not. Exactly. So the age of our our legislative body is a huge issue. The age of our senior leaders, the age of our senior policymakers, because they have fear of of death, frankly. Because they're old, because they have fear of death, or because they and because it can't be because they recognize the age was. So you and I were talking offline before we we press record and it's my understanding that age is the number one has always been the number one risk factor for COVID. Is that true? It blows away every other risk factor by orders of magnitude. Yeah. Like the difference between a five-year-old and a 80-year-old, I think is a thousand fold. And, and then the second risk factor is weight. Is that true? I mean, weight as it relates to things like Heart disease. Yes. I mean, in, in that way is predictive of many, many other conditions like heart diabetes. disease, diabetes, right? Kidney disease. Yes. I mean, so those, I would say more like metabolic syndrome. Metabolic syndrome. Of which weight is very clearly a factor. Do, Often. are there thin people who have metabolic there syndrome? Are, there are. Yeah. But they're extremely outnumbered. Th- so that would be rare. Yeah. Huh. Rareish. Yeah. Rareish. Um, what percent, let's ballpark a percentage. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the correct way to say that about, I talk about the second biggest risk factor for COVID is to say metabolic syndrome. Yeah. Which would be your body's ability to what process, process food, not sugar in particular, but just all food. So metabolic syndrome is a constellation of conditions um, that have to do with, right, like how you process energy, but that leads to high blood pressure, heart disease, um, diabetes, and then it ha- things like poor circulation, right? Like you have very poor circulation to your extremities that are related to those other things, like your heart's not pumping well. Also, you have high blood pressure, so your blood's not, like, getting back to the heart. So it's, it's like, really cascading series of events, and that will eventually cause kidney failure, for example. Is metabolic syndrome a rich country problem? Or do poor countries have metabolic issues, same level of issues with metabolic syndrome? No, not the same. It would be way, way lower. I mean, it's, it's very closely tied to weight, a processed food diet. Excess, probably. Low, low exercise. Yeah. Excess sedentary jobs. Sedentary lifestyle. Professional jobs. Things. Correct. So if you're like a farmer in Sierra Leone, you very likely do not have metabolic syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I guess it's not like unheard of. There are such things as like congenital high blood pressure. Sure, or congenital um, heart disease yeah, kind yeah. of a thing. It's going to be way, way, way less common. I mean, 40% of American adults are obese and 70% are overweight. 40% of American adults are obese? hmm And obesity is a major risk factor of metabolic disease, I'm assuming. Correct, yes. 
but we it seems like only recently we've been allowed to talk about America's obesity problem as it relates to COVID. Uh, yeah, as it relates to COVID. I mean, is anyone talking about it now? I'm not sure they are. Well, I think you can talk about it now in a way that you couldn't. Mm, 2020, certainly. Mm. 2021, certainly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the narrative I was hearing, at least in Portland, in, throughout 2020 was, we're all at the same risk. Oh, yeah. And if if I touch the mailbox wrong, oh, Lord. I'm going to get COVID and die. I'm going to be on a ventilator, and I'm going to, as a 40, mid-40, a woman, well, no conditions that I know of, um, in her 40s, is going to die of COVID. That, <laughs> that was my... That was the narrative I feel like we were being fed in Portland. Did you feel that way as a Portland resident? Did that narrative was out there? Yes. And that I, I, I thought it was dominant. I thought the yeah. dominant narrative yeah. was we Agreed. are all equally at risk. It was like HIV. It was my HIV education as a kid was mm-hmm. you're going to get HIV mm-hmm. if you don't wear a condom. Mm-hmm. That was mm-hmm. the education. It was very dare-esque. Yeah. Yeah. And you know who kind of was the architect of that was Fauci. But I heard that he also, but I've also spoken to epidemiologists and people who really admired what he did with Mm -hmm. HIV. So like. Well, he kind of came around. Oh, did he? He he had a big change of heart. Or at least change of what he did. Can you say more about that? So in the beginning, you know, the activists were like very angry at him. Um, he was I very did much, not know that. Yeah, he was very much on this model of like anyone can get HIV. And the gay male community was saying, you know, no, not really. Like this is, we need your help. And um, there was a lot of activism directed at him, particularly like they were very angry with him. They raided his office and like threw blood all over it. And Was this these, like ACT UP? I'm thinking yeah, of the movements in San Francisco. Yeah, and ACT UP, exactly. There was like a big die-in, you know, on the lawn. I remember the remember die-in. Yeah. I remember the die-in. And then he he did sit down with a bunch of HIV activists, and he, I think, became convinced that they needed to do more and that those groups needed to be part of the conversation and et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, I mean we'll I give him credit like for changing what he was doing. That's interesting because I feel like our our understanding of HIV, I mean, my kid, AIDS is not on my kid's radar. You know, I've got a kid in junior high school where you start learning about sex and stuff, it's not even, it's on there, you know, but it's not, I don't think she sees it as the threat that I saw it as when I was in middle school. I mean, I just thought, oh my God, there's somebody walking around with AIDS in this middle school right now and I, (laughs) they're going to want to sleep with me and I'm going to get it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that was kind of the, it was like the dare, I think of the dare Nancy Reagan anti-drug mm-hmm, campaign, mm-hmm. which was like, if you take one, you know, drop of acid, you're going to walk into a helicopter propeller and we're never going to see you again. I, mm-hmm. It was that kind of extremist. And I just remember even um, as a young adult, we it was like when you were a sexually active young adult, well, we'll exchange test scores and then maybe we can sleep together. Um, we can we can get an STD panel and then make sure neither of us um, is going to end up like Magic Johnson was kind of the mm-hmm. even though he's you know the, I think he says he's been with so many he can't even count. I mean mm-hmm. we're even you know there's all these risk factors and ways to measure risk that none of us were learning mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when I was coming up in regard to HIV and it just that kind of panic about it reminds me 
a bit of COVID. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. Like, we're all equally at risk. Mm -hmm. Don't downplay the risk to you. Oh, my God, if you get it, Mm -hmm. just, you know, stay away. Keep your, if your kid gets it, put them in their room. You know, I don't care how young they are. Mm -hmm. They can call you if they need something. I mean, I know people who did stuff like that with elementary age kids. I really hope I don't know any, but I probably do. I do. You know, and I know spouses who did that with their spouse. Like, oh, you have I mean, I, I remember saying to my husband, if I have COVID, like we should kind of talk about if I get it, like, do you want, because I was doing more, he was coming into work every day. I was not doing that because I dislike coming downtown, but I was doing more socially. And I remember saying, if I'm traveling a little bit more, and I remember saying, if I come down with COVID, we should come up with a protocol that we agree on. And he just said, I'm going to stop you right there. There's not going to be any protocol. You're going <laughs> to sleep in this bed. You were going to eat from Good the plates. Him. Like I, and he's, he's old, he's much older than I am. So I, you know, I was kind of like, Oh, well, okay. It's, I mean, I'm fine with that, but uh, I, I feel like I you're more already. at risk. Really <laughs> he's just nice. like, you're my wife. Like we're yeah. not, this isn't, yeah. um, I mean, I think, and I think by then we, it, there was at least uh, some understanding somewhere in the back of our minds, as much propaganda as we were being fed in, in Oregon, at least, that we, that we were all equally at risk, including, you know, the third graders and the kindergartners and whatever, that that no, um, we're probably not going to die from this. So you're saying that when schools first closed down, you didn't feel a sense of panic and you probably would have sent your kids to school. Oh, 100 percent. I would have. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it was very, I was very much questioning the influenza A closure model right from the beginning, mostly because of the Diamond Princess and like very early data, which actually turned out to be very accurate. I mean, it's a little bit hard to, I didn't know there was a documentary about the Diamond Princess, but when you look at the data now, in retrospect, it basically was pretty accurate. You know, it was like, 40% of the people never got COVID or were totally asymptomatic. I think 13 people or seven, it sort of depends what database you're looking at, were um, were actively symptomatic. And the, I want to say there were like 1,100 people or something, right? Um, I think nobody died possible that one person died kind of think nobody died but I could be wrong about that so you know I mean they were pretty predictive right and because you have your scientific background you're are you reading the like paper the scientific papers on all of these cases that you're talking about Mm -hmm. yeah so the documentary I'm thinking of is called the last cruise and it's fascinating okay I'll watch it and uh we saw it on hulu and it was released in March of 2021, and it won an Emmy Award for Outstanding Short. It's not very long. It's uh, 40 minutes, and it's, it is about the, this Diamond Princess <coughs> cruise liner. So the coronavirus, there, it, what was that? That was the first outbreak outside of China. Is that right? Yes. Well, I mean, who knows? But as far as we know, yeah, right, right now. But the, so the Diamond Princess was absolutely essential piece of information in that everyone was tested, right? And this, so they had this confined population where they knew what the denominator was. And what was the denominator? Whatever the it was like eleven hundred people. Okay, I forget how many. It was a pretty big ship. 
So of those people, they knew exactly how many were symptomatic. You're saying it was a good sample size to kind of study this. Yeah, it was perfect. Because how many other places did they test everybody? So there was one town in Italy very early on. I forget what it was called. It was like this Italian hill town that was isolated where they tested the whole town. And so they had similar data, right? It was like, we know exactly how many people never got COVID. We know how many people got COVID were asymptomatic. We know how many people were sick. And we know like kind of who was contacting who. Vo. Vo, right. With a accent after the O, V-O accent. Small village in the Paduan Hills in Northern Italy. So those data weren't available anywhere else. Because you can go to Portland and say, oh, COVID is rising. But you have no clue how many people were asymptomatic. How many people never came in for testing, right? So these, these, the rest of the sort of guesstimates were wildly inaccurate. So the, my very, very first COVID piece was about this because <coughs> in Oregon, for example, they were using these models being generated by the state modeler. Was this somebody at OHA? OHSU. OHSU was do, was do, uh, generating mo- COVID models. Mm-hmm. Okay. Models of spread and infection. They were using this to close schools and businesses. They were using his model specifically. And I was looking at them and going, well, I don't know where he's coming up with this stuff. Like, this just seems so far off. Why? Like, I mean, it was... <sighs> Because the assumptions of the model were not made clear. It had these weird factors where, like, trying to guess how many people would be so afraid they would stay home, things like that, right? Where you're like, hmm. Um, Also, because testing was very inaccurate or, you know, kind of convenient sample. So um, you don't really have a good idea of what your baseline is or, you know, how many people are infected but feel totally fine. Um, and then also using these waves, like, oh, it's going to peak here. And, you know, they had no idea. I mean, he was, all his models were wildly off, over-predicting peaks, right? like these peaks that never materialized. And that's what they were using to close down schools and businesses. And I was kind of going, hmm, this seems strange. Um, particularly in school, you know, like, why are you closing schools based on these things when children seem relatively unaffected um what about the argument that they're going to go home and kill grandma yeah so that was based on like really no data at all (laughs) i mean (laughs) i mean well so that's like an influenza a model right even though there was like some some there's a lot of emotional appeal to it yeah (laughs) unfortunately with some evidence even early on that children were pretty poor replicators of covid at all you know that they don't the hypothesis that you don't know what work has been done on it subsequently, though, is that young children have very few ACE2 receptors, and COVID attacks the enter cells by binding to ACE2. So, like, the older you get, the more ACE2 you have. ACE2? Yeah. Number two? Yeah. It's in lung and other places, but very, very common receptor in lung tissue. And that's why it's hurts the respiratory system so acutely yes exactly so because children are very very low in ace2 receptors you know i don't know whether that hypothesis was ever like completely substantiated it was was an early 
hypothesis that to me makes sense because we know COVID binds to ACE2 and we know children have very few ACE2 receptors. It seemed like that's not a crazy idea. Um, so this whole, like, the kids are going to kill grandma, there wasn't a lot of support for. And even, you know, very early on we had data from places that didn't close schools like Sweden showing that that just wasn't really happening. And also that actually later data showed that old people who were in houses with children were protected and not the opposite. Because they weren't around other elderly people? Is that the theory? If, if they're around younger people, that's a better population to be around? No, because children were probably acting as a block to transmission. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah, and or that adults who live in houses with young children just already have immunity to a lot of crap, you know, like because they're exposed to a lot of stuff. I mean, both those things are plausible and maybe That's both are so, true. so, okay, I didn't know this. That's yeah. very interesting. Yeah, so there's, there's data to support that, huh? Mm-hmm. A study, wow. I believe it was done in Denmark. And, and so we did this Sweden. all wrong because, yeah, all wrong. like, for instance, as late as late 2001... I knew people who were back at work, but, you know, the childcare wasn't open and they needed some, and the school's online and they needed somebody to do the schooling mm-hmm, and that did. was the grandma and grandpa, but kids, they didn't want their kids to go back to school because they didn't want them to go back to school and then affect grandma and grandpa who were doing the schooling mm. um, and the majority of the homework and the kind of interfacing with the teachers at this point. And so it was sort of like protect grandma and grandpa and kids and then we'll go back to work and, you know, the Biden payments have dried up and they want us back at work and how this is the only way we can do it. we got to keep the kids out of school so they don't hurt our parents. And you're saying there's actually no data to, to support that, that, we, that we still haven't come up with anything like that. Correct. And the data we have supports the opposite. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. But we did this for so, why were we doing this for so long? Especially in Oregon. We were like 18 months of school closures. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know we've got the teachers union factor. Is, mm-hmm. that what you, is that what it was? I think that was a lot of it. But no, I mean, those policies were coming from Kay Brown. It certainly wasn't all of it. I mean, she didn't, you know, she. Yeah, but they're kind of, they're her, one of her biggest donors. So right, she's got to yeah. do right by them. Um. I mean, I think there was also just a lot of fear-mongering by media. And, I mean, I know tons of teachers. I think some of them, a lot of them were genuinely scared. Um, Oh, I know they were. Yeah. And then, you know, like like we said, like when your thumb is on the scale, if that's your anxiety or the fact that you don't want to commute or whatever it is, then it's easy to convince yourself of a position. I will say. That's interesting. I talked about this quite a bit. And uh, do you know Jennifer Say? I don't know her, but I adore her. Yeah. So she came and she's making a documentary about. I've heard that. About the pandemic. And she um, quit her Levi's mm-hmm. job, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Because they wanted her to shut up about kids going back to school. Because she she was reading this. I, I was reading all this early on as well. And wh- around the time I started this podcast, I was reading all this stuff that was coming out, not just from Jay Bhattacharya, from all sorts of people, from um, even people that would be seen as like big maskers, um, CDC type people saying, 
Um, include even Monica Gandhi type, you know, people saying, hey, the biggest risk factor is age. I just remember being very confused. And I think Jennifer Say had the same reaction, but she mm-hmm. was a high up exec at Levi's, right? Yeah. And so she was t- tweeting about a lot of this stuff and they want her to shut up mm-hmm. and s- stop the tweeting and stop talking about how kids should go back to school because it's politically it's political dynamite. Mm-hmm. And you're you are a Levi's exec, and she's you know over and over she would always say this is personal capacity, personal capacity, not speaking for Levi's. Mm-hmm. I, these are my own opinions, and and they finally couldn't take it anymore because because she, she was she tweets very well, mm-hmm. and by then I think she had tens of thousands of Twitter followers and devotees, and I think you know Levi's was probably getting a lot of pushback from the fringe. I would call them fringe left politically people who thought COVID was going to kill their nine-year-old and wanted her to shut up and just didn't want to be part of this political firestorm. And she said, I'm going to leave because I want my kids back in school. I think she moved too. They moved to Denver. Denver, Colorado. Yeah, I was going to say Colorado, so Denver. And she said, well, I I moved to Denver because I want these kids back in school and I'm not shutting up about this because this was wrong. And the way we treated these kids was were wrong. And they said, okay, fine, you can leave and we'll give you some money. And then you just need to sign this non-disclosure agreement. And she said, I'm not signing anything. And she walked away from that money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that your understanding too? Do you know her then yeah. personally? Yeah. Oh, I'm so jealous. You know all these monsters. <laughs> yeah. I'm like so, so, well, so she was uh, in a job that was very high up there where she they came to her and said, right. you could be the next CEO right. of Levi's. But you need we need to like Shut vet, down the vet your social media. Yeah. And she was like, uh-oh, because this is going to be a problem. Because she had continued to tweet about school. And then they came back to her and said, yeah, you're not going to be able to be the leader because of your social media controversial opinions. And you're basically in the job where we need to promote the person to be. So you're blocking that position. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, we need you I to I didn't leave. know this level of detail. Yeah, because we need to put someone in there who can be the next CEO. And until you leave, we can't do that. So that's why they wanted to, like, shuffle. To part ways. Mm-hmm. It, how did you come to know Jennifer Say? As It's S-E-Y. How did you come to know her personally? Uh, we just met on Twitter. And then... Because you were publishing these things she was reading, probably. Yeah, and I was following her, and then I went to a conference in Denver that she was at. That's where we actually met, and we were both friends with Megan Daum, because she'd been on Megan's pod. Um, I guess Megan introduced us, yeah. And then, uh, but she came to Portland to film for her documentary. Jennifer did? Oh, really? Oh, my gosh. I did not know that. Well, this is a great place to come to talk about these closures. Yeah, yeah. So she interviewed me and another person in our like school opening group who has a child with a disability. Um, and I was saying that one thing I think has really gotten very insufficient uh, coverage in terms of <clears throat> how educators responded to the pandemic, and this this I'm sympathetic to honestly, is that. If you ask teachers, a lot of teachers, and I know a ton of teachers, why, what do you hate about your job? And I think it's ridiculous to say that, like, teachers don't, like, I mean, teachers like children. You do not become a teacher if you hate children. That's just ridiculous. Um, They generally really love children, really care, 
are very caring people. Agree. They go into teaching because they want to make a difference. Agree. What is it that makes your job unpleasant? They will say classroom management. Like the amount of behavior management they're doing is untenable. And it makes it so they can't teach. They're spending so much time doing classroom management and behavior management that they're not able to teach. Is this a... When I was in school, I don't remember... I I remember behavioral issues with kids, but I don't remember it being this... I don't remember seeing the kinds of stuff I saw in my kids' classrooms pre-COVID. I'm talking as young as kindergarten. Violence, violence against other kids, violence Mm -hmm. against other teachers. I didn't see any of that. Is this a relatively new, this this behavioral management stuff, is that a relatively new phenomenon in like the last, what, 15 years? I think so. I mean, um, there were always some kids, but I don't... We I mean, always now had it's like some, a, too. A third of the class yes, or something that's like right. that, right? Yeah. Or the one dominates right. so yes. much. And, and I didn't. I also didn't see it as young as kindergarten. Yeah. I saw it in my kids' classes mm-hmm. as young mm-hmm. as kindergarten, and I was floored. I just didn't expect it till 6th, mm-hmm. 7th, 8th, ninth. Yeah. Uh, and then around 10th or so, they tend, tended, in my experience in schooling, they tended to mature. But all of our behavioral problems were junior high school level kind of stuff. And then, and the minute those kids acted out, and I went to a really garbage junior high school that is now shut down. But when the minute those kids acted up, they were sent, they were gone. They were mm-hmm. expelled from the classroom and sent to the principal's office or whatever. Yeah, so that's really, really changed. But that's all changed, yes. And and I, I'd say, what, past 15 years or something? This is like a lot of it's a restorative justice model, and it's a, yeah. it's a lot of complicated factors, right? Yes. But the point is the kids stay in the classroom, and they continue to behave in ways that are disruptive, including violently, mm-hmm. and they're not – the teachers are required to proceed. Correct. Without these – children or child this child being removed physically so that they can just teach so they're all they're doing is managing this group of of children engaged in behavioral problems and inflicting those on other kids yeah okay i mean so much has changed in our country well well, reynolds high school shut down because of it right yeah yeah i did a piece in the wall street journal on that oh did you Mm -hmm. it was called school closures aren't just for covid anymore we'll link to that i my, my title was sorry um forget what we, we called it it's like when covid when school closures are, are the hammer everything is a nail yeah I think it was called. that's a perfect but, um, perfect title but they changed it um but anyway like I, I don't know where to put the roots of that right like part of it is that it's not possible to raise a family in this country if you're low income without possibly working multiple jobs like right like the amount of time that parents have to spend outside the home or if you're if you're middle income i mean i know frankly i know a lot of teachers that have second jobs yeah so like the whole element of the time and energy you have to manage your kids behavior at home i think is right very adversely affected well any parent knows there are so many calories required in those fights where they're demanding things and you're you come home from work and you're totally exhausted and you want to just go fine I will take you to McDonald's or <laughs> fine you can stay up all night I don't care yeah. I'm going to bed I right. mean yeah. the yeah. it really does require just fortitude and vigilance and a ton of mental capital mm-hmm. that a lot of us don't have at particular mm-hmm. times or mm-hmm. e- sometimes don't have the space or room to develop that 
Yeah, I mean that the I do think the dietary situation in this country is very grim. You know, the oh, amount yeah. of people who aren't eating a nutritious diet that supports self-control. Um the lack of exercise. I mean, <laughs> self-control. I mean, that is, those are not words I would associate with most people in this country um, in regard to anything. Yeah. And, and I think the roots of the behavior issues that teachers are dealing with are very, very deep and very, very multifactorial. It's very hard to point at one thing. I mean, I personally all for people's right to choose what kind of family they want, but I do wonder if being a single parent you know, makes it hard to have the energy and support to discipline your kids. I think there's data on that. I Don't we have data on that? Probably. And the fact that a single parent isn't home as much, right? Like, and I'm not saying people shouldn't be single parents. Of course, that should be a viable option. But I think we have to be realistic about the kind of support these parents have in our country, right? If any. If any. Um, and we don't live in a communal country like Mexico or Europe yeah, or what have you, we where have we've got household people. extensions mm-hmm. and multiple generations living together. Exactly. So all of that, I think, is a huge factor. I think screens are a huge factor. I mean, the degree to which, right. you know, the number of children with ADHD and you know, being in front of screens all day and all these things. And, of course, COVID contributes to that because then the schools are shut down and then they're on the screen. All, yeah. They're yeah. forced to be on the screen and they're told to be on the screen. Mm-hmm. So this predates COVID, obviously. Yes, of but course. But COVID clearly made it worse. But um, And was that part of your Reynolds High School piece that... Isn't there a factor that having these kids out of school yes. for 18 months mm-hmm. exacerbated a lot of these behavioral issues? Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And so ironically, I think a lot of teachers suddenly said, basically were freed of the burden of classroom management. And this was like a huge weight off of them. I didn't even think about that. Didn't even think if about some that. kid is going off, you just mute them. yeah. Right? You don't have to deal. I didn't even... Th- that's exactly right. And think of how much less stressful that would be. So much less stressful. And on your body. And then your... Too. You know, like, physically, mm-hmm. you're not going to have a chair thrown at you that day. Right? All of it. All of it. And so, even though teaching online was hard, wow, and Leslie, I know they were exhausted, and I know a lot of teachers said, like, yeah, I'm completely exhausted, I'm working hard, like, yeah, I believe it, but the classroom management piece was completely gone. And if the kids weren't learning, I mean, they didn't really know about it. Whereas, you know, if you have a kid during reading time who's just standing on his desk and throwing the book, and you're well aware that kid's not learning. And that's stressful. You feel bad. You feel like you're failing them, and you also, like, have no resources And you're also dodging the book that they're throwing, yeah. and you're trying to get kids out of their way. And, and trying to keep the other kids on task. So, like, most of the teachers I know would have freely admitted this was completely exhausting. It's completely frustrating. We don't know what to do. You know, I'm a billion percent on their side in that regard. I've just never heard that articulated. I know. I think it's really not gotten a lot of attention. And it's something I've thought about the whole time. And then ironically, now coming back, of course, it's worse. Yes. I don't I don't think it's politically popular to talk about. And not in PPS. I know that. Portland Public Schools is not hip to dealing with behavioral issues. But uh, surely they know. Oh, for sure they know. I know they know because when my oldest was in kindergarten and this was going on there, um, you know, she came home with welts on her forehead and things like that. And I just remember I was in the principal's office almost every day. It wasn't like he didn't know. I, I knew her teacher. She was a friend of mine before she was her teacher. 
And she would tell me, I keep my radio close for myself physically and Yikes. for the kids in this class. Hmm. And they refuse to move these kids out of the class. Mm-hmm. The big, the biggest promise they could give me is this particular group of kids will never be together ever again. And because mm-hmm. that elementary school is freaking enormous, like most in Portland public, it's, it was like four or five classes of 38 kids. Mm-hmm. It's easy to spread them out into four or five various classes. Mm-hmm. They could make good on that promise, but they were refused to do anything that year. So either my husband or I, or we paid for someone to be in the classroom and basically be an aide all day, every day to manage these behavioral issues and keep our kid out of the line of fire. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, I feel for the teachers. I really do. I mean, and 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 when I think about that, yeah, like, oh my God, this is your vocation? Yeah. Like, you're basically working in a psych ward. Yeah, and they can't teach because you're just spending all day You're supposed to teach, but instead you're managing a psych ward. Yeah, I mean, in all the conversations around literacy, for example, like why kids can't read, Part of the conversation I think is missing is that it's very hard just to get anything done in a lot of classrooms in America it today. Is. It is. Because a few kids can completely derail. Now, having said that, the solution to this problem is not to banish all those kids. Like, there's got to be better solutions. And this whole situation we're in now very much arose out of the backlash against zero tolerance. So zero tolerance happened after Columbine. Oh, I didn't, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, so zero tolerance was explicitly a reaction to Columbine. And that was, we'll throw you out of school if we catch you engaged in threatening threatening violence. right, yeah. Like, I mean, even when my son started. That was Clinton administration stuff. Gosh, what year was that? (sighs) 1990, 99, I 98, think. 99, something yeah. like that. Yeah. So when my son started kindergarten, PPS still had zero tolerance. I mean, they literally called it that, which is kind of startling. And that was, he started in, he was born yeah, in 2003. Yeah, Columbine was April 99. So my son started kindergarten in 2008. Wow. PPS, so his, that went on his for elementary school had a zero tolerance policy. A child was suspended from school for having a, a, Gun made out of Legos. Seems too far. I mean, right? Yeah. Every, like, <laughs> I mean, it was literally like four Legos together with a little handle, suspended for three days. This we in in Portland, we simply cannot seem to modulate any policy we have at all. But this was, an, I mean, a lot of this was not uncommon. Okay, this was part of zero tolerance. Okay, no toy guns of any kind, right. even made no, of I Legos. This. Right? I remember if this. you push somebody or whatever, they would suspend you. This child, who was a very good friend of my son's, who's an absolutely dear-hearted person, like could not be lovelier. He was a little rambunctious. Suspended for the Lego, mm. then put this other kid's head in the drinking fountain. Mm. I mean, but like, like they were literally five. I mean, literally, he was like, come over here, like, dunked his head a in, little in boy. the drinking fountain. Yeah. yeah, suspended. So, okay, that was and your that tolerance. seems like typical little boy behavior. Yeah, or little, I mean, it was ridiculous. So, um, part of the equity movement in schools was like, okay, we can't have zero tolerance because, uh, you know, this is very disproportionately affecting children of color. Fine, like, um, that's a good agenda. 
things went very, very far in the other direction. Right. The pendulum swung the other way. The pendulum where anything swung goes. so far. No, yes. anything goes. Now, now kids are being shot out in front of their high schools by, I think, one of the latest ones was allegedly a 15-year-old was the shooter. Yeah, yeah. So so now I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I think a lot of teachers are very fed up um, yeah. and feel they have no tools. And well, they don't. The, the schools don't support them. They don't. And I don't really honestly know what the answer is. I mean, there's got to be something. <laughs> there's got to be something better. But So that's interesting. So, um, so there were all these factors at play mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of these school closures that that had nothing to do with science, but some very real fear, but yeah. probably not a lot of science based. Right. Real fear. And then like I keep saying like this thumb on the scale of like, well, I don't want to admit it, but actually not dealing with behavior is like a huge relief. And it would be, and it would be right. Like who can blame them for that? I mean, I don't think the answer was to close goals, but I understand the motivated reasoning on that score. Oh, I, hundred percent. I'd never even thought about it. I think that's a great way to articulate it. Um, Did you see that that teacher who was shot by the little kid in what state was that? She's suing the school because multiple people had said that kid has brought a gun to school and the school did nothing. Even that day, somebody said he had a gun in his backpack. He showed another kid and the school was like, oh, well. First grade. Class of uh, Virginia school, six year old. Yeah, right. It was child. in Virginia, to Virginia Beach, I think. Yeah, six year old child shot teacher. Reo- school reopens with stepped up security. But she's suing. Yeah, expose it. Yeah, exposes she in in this lawsuit. The idea is she's going to expose the failures in behavioral plans, disability plans, IEPs. Etc. It sounds like. And the fact that the school had been explicitly warned by her and others that this child had access to a gun, I believe. Yeah, part it, of her it also says, I'm just kind of scrolling through headlines here, and I'm also reading headlines that say things like, he, this ch- child in question allegedly tried to choke another kid, like had a history of violence, Generally, um, I mean, this is allegedly the the shooting was intent intentional. Like it wasn't like he was oh, yeah, trying no, to no, shoot no. a he door. Was, he was mad at her. Isn't that amazing? Three warnings. Here's one. BBC.com, January 26, twenty twenty three. Three warnings before he shot his teacher. The school was warned three separate times, and the superintendent uh, has now sounds like deservedly. Lost his job. Um, they, they'd they been warned three times that he might have a gun, the lawyer for the teacher says. This is all from the BBC. This included a request to search the boy and a report from another child who said the boy had shown him a gun. And fortunately, this teacher, who is just 25 years old, for Pete's sake, is now recovering. And they're saying, she, the teacher's saying this is totally preventable. And... They should have been on top of this the minute they heard. Warned three different times, school administration was warned by concerned teachers and employees that the boy had a gun on him at school and was threatening people. But the administration could not be bothered, is what the teacher is saying. And the teacher is saying that she um, 
I mean, it sounds like even on that day, she a teacher reported she searched his backpack and thought he had a gun. She didn't find it, but told the school officials that he might have put the gun in his pocket before going out for a break. And the official said he has little pockets. Oh, yeah, that's right. A half hour later, another teacher reports that the boy had shown a child the gun and threatened to shoot him if he told. Oh. A different employee asked to search the boy in his backpack and was told to wait because the school day was almost over. Oh. Good grief. And then at about 2 o'clock, so this was, what, uh, an hour and change after the first report of the gun in the backpack, he points, the 6-year-old points the gun at his 25-year-old teacher, fires in the middle of a lesson. She ushers school, her students out of the class after being shot through the hand and in the chest. Boy, she's a hero, isn't she? Um, And gets them to safety. This is just absolutely incredible. And there were text messages, it says. Her claims are bolstered by text messages exchanged. This is still the BBC between the school's teachers and obtained by the Washington Post. According to the messages, she had raised, the teacher had raised concerns about the six-year-old and asked for help. Um, wow. This is just really outrageous. I mean, no wonder they don't want to go to school. Right? I mean, it kind of puts things in perspective. And no wonder a lot of kids don't want to go. Yeah, I mean, it's sad. If you can't learn and it's super disruptive and you've got six-year-olds slinging guns, um, that doesn't sound like the best educational environment. So you were part of that opening schools team that Kim McGarr and Renee Gonzalez were on? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and was that the Facebook group that Kim talked about when she came on the podcast? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so she was saying that she felt very naive when she set up that face group. She did not mm-hmm. anticipate the level of pushback that you all got. Did you anticipate that going in? That you would get all this pushback from not just teachers. I mean, that, it sounds like you probably anticipated that, but other parents saying, we, do, we, you know, we don't. No, I didn't anticipate other parents. Because you thought by then the science was clear that these kids were not going to drop dead of COVID. I mean, I wouldn't say it was completely clear. I just don't think that very, very extreme measures should be put in place without some pretty good idea that that's going to happen. I mean, it just seems so speculative. I was like, since when do we just speculatively shut kids out of school? So I I didn't think there was a ton of data either way, but the data there were did not support the policies. And then the people who were against opening schools were probably clinging to what you said initially, which is there isn't a lot of data either way. And since we don't know, we can't go. Well, so this is where my first mind was blown, was that we were saying, like, well, you can keep your kid home, right? You don't have to go. If you are so worried about it or you have some very high-risk person in your household or whatever, Stay home. So was the group advocating for what hybrid instruction? Yeah. Where kids could remain online yeah. and you would what you'd like beam the lesson in with the kids who were present at school. Correct. And the group started about when? Was it 2021? We started no, I think it was over the summer. Like when it summer before 2021. Yeah. So after the 2020 school year. Yeah, I think when we started realizing that school maybe wouldn't open. 
in the fall. Gosh, I should know this. I don't exactly remember when we got started. There were other jurisdictions that were saying we're going to open, and we weren't one of them. I mean, so in Oregon, you could not. Right. Yeah. But I mean, in other states. Oh, in other states. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Florida was fully open in August 2020. So Florida has a very early start to the school year. They start in August. All their schools opened in August 2020. And they, I actually wrote about this quite a bit. So they didn't do it by executive order of the governor, which is kind of funny because DeSantis was so strong on schools, but he, he did not order them open. Um, but what they did was the state school board declared that a remote school was not school. So that's how they did it. Did they have data even then that showed remote school was bad for learning? That data's been around forever. I mean, not forever, like since really? it was remote. Yeah, like, you know, in Thailand when the tsunami hit, they did some studies showing that even like a 10-day school closure was pretty disastrous. Wow. Yeah. And even like in the, you know, the 50s um, when schools, so there wasn't like remote, but they showed that just short-term school closures were very disastrous. It was a little bit different than what you're asking. But there there were some data showing remote school weren't good, and there were also data showing just closures were bad from other countries and from the U.S. And then we quoted this piece a bunch in different uh, pieces that I wrote, but the, the New York City Health Commissioner in 1918 kept the schools open during the flu pandemic, and he said, basically, the kids are better off at school. Even though flu is more fatal than COVID for children, his argument basically was that for poor kids, you know, he he published a piece in the New York Times, you can find it on their archive, saying poor kids need school. They need to be, because they, they did like cleanliness in school and they had, I believe even then they had meals and they tested them for like they took their temperatures and things like that. And the schools really were like a safety net in New York for kids in the slums. And he said, you know, these kids are in tenements. They're living in 10 to an apartment. No internet access Nothing. Or, or intermittent. They, they are not better off at home. In fact, school is so essential to their health that we're keeping the schools open. So that was in 1918. And he refused to close the schools and was really like vindicated. I mean, New York did okay. They wasn't that much different than anyone else. So, you know, he was on the record saying school is essential for children's mental and physical health. Even in the face of a highly transmissible disease in children. So you're you're saying that <laughs> that this is going to sound funny to articulate that Florida was following the science. Yeah, I mean... The data that we did have. DeSantis was consulting with European health officials. He was talking to Swedish health officials. He was talking to Danish people. And then, of course, he had Jay and Martin. Uh, right. And in the Joe. Dexter Filkins article I read about DeSantis in The New Yorker, which is a great article, it, it leads with he was probably right on COVID because his he was consulting with all these doctors and scientists who have done 
all this research and were reading the scientific papers. And then they were, he's very smart apparently. Mm-hmm. And they were giving him the scientific mm-hmm. papers and he was reading them and was conversing with them fluently. Mm-hmm. And Jay Bhattacharya who worked with you on the Norfolk paper is, is saying in this Dexter Filkins article, he understood the science. Yeah. Yeah. And he was consulting with Martin who was, you know, Koldorf, Koldorf and, and those people. So, so yeah, I think, I think he was as up on the, as whatever science was available as anyone in the country. And, you know, there were some data from Europe who, like Sweden, reopened a um, couple of places. Uh, the UK had reopened it for elementary, so they, they were not as good on high school. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, the other countries were reopening. And then Florida, I believe Georgia reopened. Um, but anyway, he, he did it through the school board. The state school board. And the state school board basically said, remote school is in school. Everyone needs to open. And at that point, the union in Miami sued and said, you know, we're, we're not opening. This is not safe. You can't force us. And eventually they dropped that suit. I'm not exactly sure why. Because they were very, very against opening. Well, he gave them, a, I know DeSantis gave the teachers a pay raise and did a bunch of stuff to kind of sweeten the pot for mm-hmm. them coming back, which I thought was cool. Yeah, why not? I, I thought mean, that was, was great. I mean, he's difficult. giving teachers pay raises. That's not usually something Republican governors do, mm-hmm. but I don't know why we've ceded education to the right wing. I got to tell you that. I don't. Yeah, I know. It's a strange, it's a strange flip-flop. I don't know why we did that. And, and then um, the other question I have for you is, I, you know, schools was a big one. Um, but also, what were your thoughts on masking? Because, of course, I was one of those New York Times readers and, and New York Times daily podcast listeners who was hearing Fauci say, don't mask, don't mask, don't mask. And then I was hearing mask, mask, mask. And then, of course, we live in Oregon where we have the distinct pleasure of having outdoor mask mandates <laughs> that lasted. You know, th- we closed the beaches. We closed parks. We closed playgrounds. We closed... The darn rose garden was closed. So um, so we had this fear of outdoor spread. We had this fear of touching outdoor playground equipment or being around each other at all, really outside in any capacity. I mean, the darn beach, I, I have never stood close to anyone, close enough to anyone at the Oregon coast to even really Not to mention see that their it's incredibly features. windy. Right, right. <laughs> in fact, it's so windy, it's incredibly uncomfortable yeah. and painful, and yeah. it's part of what I, why I hate the... I am a terrible Oregonian that I hate the Oregon coast. I mean, it's beautiful, but you have to be, like, so bundled up because of the wind. It's beautiful to look at on a calendar <laughs> or from a, a couch, a very comfortable couch with a glass of wine inside in a house or a condo that you're ensconced in. <laughs> For the next three with a blanket, days. right? With a blanket, <laughs> including in summer, because it's always forty degrees colder, and sometimes it yeah. even rains in August, and the wind yeah, never yeah. stops. One time when it was like a hundred here, we escaped to the coast. We tried It was that. so hot, and it was like sixty, and we were just wearing these t-shirts, and we were absolutely freezing. We did that, and it was so windy. And I remember going to some store and buying towels and, and sweatshirts, like, and we put wrapped ourselves in these towels so we could walk down the beach because it was 
the wind must have been 50 miles an hour. I don't know. But anyway. so Yeah, yeah. I think every Oregon family owns a sweatshirt from the Oregon coast that was purchased in, <laughs> in, in an emergency. They were literally breaking the glass because they drove down there in the middle of a heat wave. Thinking it would be hot, yeah. Think, well, thinking it would be like 75 exactly. at least. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the times we've been there, it's rained. And I'm just like, I sh- forget this. I'm going back to the 100 degrees. <laughs> I can't do this. Um, but yeah, windy. I mean, it was just w- our response to th- this in regard to outdoors seemed really nutty, especially the way we were continuing it into 2021. Did it not to you? And I'm not yeah, a science no, no, person. No, yeah. Well, so um, masking, I... How did you feel about that at the beginning? I was already aware of the Cochrane reviews that were done in 2007. And those were based on? Flu and other respiratory viruses, including coronaviruses. And, and what they, did that They said show? that they didn't work. The mask didn't work. So, I mean, the, those literature weren't completely new to me, and I revisited it at the beginning of the pandemic. Now, they weren't done on COVID, but they were done on other coronaviruses, which would be similar, you know, ish. And also... What about N95s? I mean, I guess I thought maybe, like, in healthcare they would do something, but I did, certainly didn't think the way most people were wearing them was ever going to work. And if you... Because ever. they have to be quote unquote fit tested. Yeah, they have right? to be fit tested and they have to be like incredibly tight. And, you know, if you were inside a school, it was like clearly ridiculous. Like half the kids had them under their noses. And teachers and, and adults. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know I wasn't ever wearing mine properly, probably. So, I mean, if you're going to wear in a 95 in a professional setting, don't you get training on how to mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. how to fit it? Yeah. Oh, they have. And how to test. In this room, it's a chamber. It's called a fit chamber, and they a there's fit like chamber. a noxious smell in it. And then if you can smell it, then your mask isn't working. We didn't have those at home. No, I mean, it's, it's <laughs> obviously absurd, right? So um, we had kind of like a big debate in our opening group about masking. like, And what we decided was but that... But were you the science person in this group? I was, well, me and and Eric, we probably did most of the data analysis and, you know, looking at our data. Um, Eric Apple, in fact, I... I don't remember. Is Eric a science guy? He's a data guy. He's I know he's a data guy. That's why I enjoy him. I mean, he's not tech. He's not a scientist, but he's a data analyst. So, yeah, I gotta um, let you go in about five minutes. Yeah. So I guess we're gonna wrap up on this hot masking yeah, topic. Yeah. So we what we decided was that it will be hopeless to try to get the kids back with without masks because so we're just gonna let this go. Even because though the it's teachers, not science the union based. will never agree. Right. Yeah. They will hang on to this. This te- the administrators are scared, so let's just let it go. Even though I personally didn't think that it did anything, and I was oh, it felt like it. There were a lot of harms that were unrecognized and not well. Well, that's what the data says, right? But so at that point, we let it go, and then after the kids went back, we started attacking the masks thing in like January of twenty twenty two. Yes, yeah, of twenty two, and then so just like a year ago. Yeah, and I published a piece with Marjorie Smelkinson and Jean Noble called "The Case Against Masks at School." And we like reviewed all the data on masking and very, you know, we were like, this has to stop. And I think that piece was like very influential because the New York Times covered it, the Wall Street Journal covered it, the Washington Post covered it, the the Atlantic, obviously. And it kind of kickstarted a conversation. And then at that point, Lena Wen, who had been a big masker, she kind of backed away. 
and did that the coincide same time. with your with your article? Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. So that right was after. around Thanksgiving. That was around Thanksgiving, right? Because I yeah, remember being correct. in a. I was traveling. It was in December. Yeah. I believe. Okay, yeah. December. Because they were all worried about the Omicron. They were like, "Well, we can't release this in the middle of the Omicron surge," and we were like, "Why not? They're not doing anything." But they they really stalled us, and so I believe it didn't come out till after Christmas. I want to say. And even Monica Gandhi, who was a big masker, is now saying, yeah, community masking, those mandates don't work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that piece got a lot of traction. Um, and it was great to be able to say, like, look, we went through all the data. David Zweig had definitely been right. on that bandwagon That was New York Magazine well. that I, he did. A I bunch think of, so. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, Lena Wen came around, and I think her piece was also influential, just saying, you know, like, enough already. People can be vaccinated if they want a mask mask. She never said masks don't work. She never went quite that far. But she said, you know, there's, there's no reason we need to be mandating masks. It's hurting little kids uh, with the communication piece. And so, you know, she... And then she was, like, excoriated by all her masks. Oh, she's still being dragged. <laughs> she's still all being dragged by the maskers. Yeah. What one... I lied. I got one more question for... It's almost like a lightning round at this point. But what does the vaccine... As we know it today, like if I were going to go out and get a booster, is that going to keep me from infecting others? And is it going to keep me from being infected if I get COVID Um, or if I'm exposed to COVID? I mean, it seems like the boosters are only lasting a couple of months. So, I mean, yeah, I think for in the short term. I think term, my doctor told me 10 days. Yeah, I, I mean, I know people who have, I want to say like Walensky got COVID 10 days after her booster. Remember that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I remember. So, I mean, it's variable, obviously. It's clearly not. Uh, what about early on? Term. Like the first vaccine, did that give us any immunity or protection against uh, COVID? Like we all, we obviously all got COVID, but did it give us any I think early on it did, yeah. I mean, it, at some point it seemed to protect against transmission. For for a certain amount of time. For a certain Do we know time. how long that was when we got our first shot? What was that? Twenty twenty one, I guess, because yeah. we were in line behind all the teachers and the right. drug so, addicts. No, and the, I don't think we do. But I mean, it seemed to be like if I had to put a number, like maybe ten months. And okay, and did Omicron change the game? Yeah, because Omicron just. I mean, if you hadn't had COVID by then, you were getting it during Omicron, and that at that point people who had gotten vaccinated when vaccines were first available, right, which would right. have been like November, December, Omicron really peaked in December, December of the next year. So at that point, their, uh, their protection from, from reinfection was wearing off, not from severe disease, which never has worn off. So, right. They, right. They and were that's kind of like re, my understanding. Resusceptible at that point, which is probably why the Omicron peak was so high, right? Like all those people who had originally gotten vaccinated there were able to be reinfected with mild colds. And Omicron is less, tends to be less deadly than, say, Delta. Well, see, we don't really know because by we then don't so many people had had it. Isn't that interesting? So, so we don't reinfection, even know that. Right. I mean, some people like Tracy Hogue, who's my good friend, I think she would say no. We don't really know that. Huh. Because but, but we know we had way more population immunity at that point. 
but we weren't allowed to talk about that back right. then. The min- yeah. mainstream press was yeah. not talking about population immunity, natural immunity, yeah. quote unquote. I mean, I, I don't think she would say it's not, but I think she would say we just don't know. We just don't know. I mean, there there are some, like, some people have said, oh, it doesn't get as far down into the lung. It's no, more I, like I think in the nose. Maybe that's isn't one the reason, data clear that it does help with severe disease and death, particularly in old people and immunocompromised people, etc. The vaccine, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, no, I'm saying that is Omicron less pathogenic. Oh, I got we it. We don't really know. I got Some it. people say no, it doesn't get as far down into the lung. I got like it. it seems to replicate more in the upper airways than in the lung, but I don't know that that's well established. And then what about the argument that these new boosters are based on Omicron? Um, and so you should go out and get a booster for Omicron and that'll protect you against infection. It won't protect you against infection. It won't. No. Okay. I said this I recently. I mean, maybe for a short time. I said this recently. Yeah. My doctor said 10 days and I said this recently and somebody very smart who I regard highly turned to me and said, you don't understand how herd immunity works. And I just remember right? thinking, well, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but I do read like Vinny Prasad and Im- immunity scientists and MDs, et cetera. And they're telling, and my own doctor is telling me 10 days, but okay. And then somebody, another friend of mine who I hold in very high regard pulled up Johns Hopkins that said, apparently on the Johns Hopkins website that he pulled up, it said, uh, get the vaccine because it's going to prevent transmission. Yeah. So that's not true. And they're still publishing this kind of a thing. Johns Hopkins is. I I mean, the CDC still says that. Rochelle Walensky said that the other day. Oh, my God. And oh, you're okay. saying there is no data to support that idea that the vaccine stops transmission no, beyond, a, like, 10, have, day, 10 right. days, no, two no. weeks, a month at best. Yeah. All right. Well, that was a good – anyway, I guess we'll end on that. <laughs> Thank you. Note. That was fun. Um, it went so fast. I, it went really fast. I'm glad that you said it went really fast because I had a really good time. I'm so glad that you came in and this has been incredibly informative. So check out Leslie Beanan's work, everybody. We're going to link to a lot of this stuff in the show notes, but be sure to, if you're a Twitter person, follow her on Twitter because she's put, she puts out the, these papers that she puts out on there and she'll put out these, a lot of these Norfolk report uh, updates on there. So be sure to pay attention to what she's doing and, and what her projects are coming up are going to be. And then, it, to the extent you've got any kind of um, ability to speak to any of your legislators or people in Congress, please talk to them about this Norfolk paper and trying to get a commission going on this COVID postmortem because we got to figure out mm. what we did wrong and what we shouldn't do again. And in Oregon, our senators have been like mom as stones on this topic. I mean, I've never seen either of them support it. I'm not sure about our Congress people. So let's apply some pressure. Um, Leslie, anything else you want to say before we sign off? No, anything we should thank know? you. Thank you for all your work. Oh, thanks so much for, thanks so much for all your work. It really helped me. It really helped me oh, at the beginning of COVID. And I, it really helped me sort through the garbage from the good stuff. So thank you very much. And thanks for what you're continuing to do with all these, um, you, you this, uh, rock star panel that is comprised of you and these, these other COVID researchers with the Norfolk paper. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. <laughs>